This podcast is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports. Bet365's Bet Builder lets you create personalised bets and calculate the odds for any football match right there in your hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Thanks for hitting the download button on Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea FC focused podcast from The Athletic. The first team may be on their winter break, but there's still plenty of blues news on which to get the views of my panel. On this week's episode, we look ahead to that Mammoth Monday meeting with Manchester United, talk Ruben Loftus Cheek and Andy Myers, and meet another Colt Hero. It's a stack show, basically, so let's get going. A very warm welcome inside our coven, or should that be cupboard, of Chelsea chat. I'm Matt Davis-Adams. I'm joined by a pair of blues brainiacs who've got the Chelsea alphabet cupboard from Azpilicueta to Zola. With me today, a full-time writer for The Athletic, but at best a part-time podcaster. Nice to see you, Simon Johnson. G'day. I've made it this week. Yeah. How was your trip to Dubai? Um, not as warm as one would think, given how pale I look. But <laughs> No, no, it was public transport issues last week, and uh, but now I'm fully... Here and ready to contribute my wisdom. And we're looking forward to it. Uh, with Simon, it's Mr. 100%. How are you doing, Liam Toomey? I'm good. I'm good. I'm the James Milner of this podcast. I'm very, very happy to be that. Although, I guess you've been here every week, haven't you? Yeah, sort of contractually obliged, <laughs> but I mean, we all are in a way. Uh, okay, first up today, we're on the comeback trail. So last week saw a long-awaited return to action for Ruben Loftus-Cheek. The midfielder, who's been out since May after suffering a serious Achilles injury in the United States, played an hour in a behind-closed-doors game against Brentford B uh, last week. Chaps, you teamed up with our friend Dom Fifield to report on Ruben's return. Give us the details, Liam, for anyone who missed the piece. It'd been in the workings for a while, hadn't it? Yeah, so um, Frank Lampard hinted heading into the February break that Chelsea would continue to, to step up Loftus-Cheek's recovery. Um, he said there were no plans initially for behind closed doors friendlies, but these things get arranged very, very quickly. It's very easy to do. And of course, Dom did a piece on Brentford B a couple of weeks ago where they they routinely agree to games like this um, with the sort of development squads of top clubs to test themselves. And it's, it's mutually beneficial. But in terms of Loftus-Cheek's recovery, I think they wanted to see how he'd react to some match action, but in a very controlled setting, you know, at, at Cobham where they could just monitor everything and how his body responded. And, and by all accounts, he, his body felt no ill effects from an hour on the pitch, which is a huge step forward. This is his first real action of any kind in, in nine months. Um, so obviously hugely encouraging for Chelsea fans. But what I would say is that we got a lot of comments on our story about, can he be fit for United? And uh, the answer is no. You know, this is um, this is very much a long-term process for Chelsea. They they they're exercising as much caution as they can with Loftus Cheek because this was a hugely serious injury, far more serious actually than the one that Callum Hudson Odoi had. Um, so I wouldn't expect to see him back in first-team contention for probably a, a couple of months more. You know, he, he's going to need development squad time. He's going to need training time with the first team, 
and then they'll go from there. So serious, Simon, that it was not that long ago that it would have been a career ender for him. So a, a big thing to play an hour, not just physically, but I'm sure mentally for him, it, it must have been a strange game for him to approach in that regard. I'm sure he was nervous. Nervous, possibly, but I, I just think, um, from what I hear, he's absolutely buzzing. Just buzzing to be training, buzzing to be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel because there were there were a few setbacks. Um I mean, I remember speaking to him, I think it was after the Valencia game at home. So that's back in September. And and he was like, six weeks, six weeks, I'm back in six weeks. Well, yeah, here we are. And, and, and he's not back. And by back, he meant back in training with the first team and with an eye of, of actually, uh, in view of actually playing. So, and I remember bumping into him in a press room uh, a month or two ago. Yes, it was the United League Cup game, I think it was. And... When I went over, he he was kind of he knew what question was coming and couldn't get away from me fast enough, and I just thought that was a real um, contrast in mood that that things had changed. But no, I mean, you're interpreting that as more indicative of his mood than just, just the sight of you coming towards him. No, <laughs> no he, he initially went, "Oh, Simon Johnson," and seemed quite pleased about the fact. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> it's more uh, enthusiastic response than I get from most people when I walk up to them. Um, but yeah, he very noticeably sort of went right. He sort of consciously went to walk away, and I kind of got the hint. Like he, I think he probably was fed up of talking about it because you can imagine, let alone journalists, sort of everyone he bumps into was going, "So when are you back? When are you back? When are you back?" But getting back to obviously his recent recent appearance, um, I just think it's it's fantastic news for him um, to be back playing at any kind of standard, and as Liam pointed out. Everyone just has to just give him time, be patient, because the last thing Chelsea and he, he wants is to have another setback. Therefore, then, is it realistic to expect anything more than a kind of 10 to 20 minute cameo from him in patches between now and the end of the season? It's hard to say with certainty, but what what I would say is it's probably unwise, if you were Frank Lampard, to expect him to be a meaningful cont- contributor this season. You know, the the priority, I think, has to be getting him back on the pitch, getting those reps back into his legs and, and making sure that he can go into next season, really approaching it as, as normal a season as possible after such a serious injury. This has to be a full rehab year now. But, it, you know, we we weren't quite sure how long he'd be out initially. Remember Maurizio Sarri saying he thought it'd be four to six months. That was proved to be incredibly optimistic. But as Simon said... Loftus-Cheek himself was was optimistic at various stages of this process, but these kinds of injuries, it's just important that you recover. It doesn't matter how long it takes. You just have to make a complete recovery, and, and there's a difference between getting healthy and then getting fit enough to play Premier League intensity football. That's going to take time, and, and I think they're, they're just going to continue to see how his body reacts. We also wonder how much Chelsea will have to try and rein Ruben back a little bit because... Euro 220 must be in his mind. You know, there must be still part of him that's thinking, "Oh, I'll get back, play a few games," because Gareth Southgate loves him. You know, he was he was part of the World Cup squad and played quite a significant part in that yeah. squad, even though he wasn't a regular starter. He L- came on in most games. Was he? very comfortable in that environment. Um, I I remember speaking to him ahead of the World Cup semi final, and he was the most chilled man in the group and and even people at the FA were sort of going yeah this is this is Ruben this is 
this is what he's like. Nothing phases him. And I mean, I did sort of say that I'm going to have problems sleeping. I mean, this is like the biggest. I had problems sleeping. You know, I was nervous. You know, because I wanted England to to win. And he's just like, nah, it's all good. You know, and and you genuinely believed him, but you can sort of think that year two twenty must be thinking, oh, if I can just get a few games together, Gareth will pick me and I can be in. But Chelsea will obviously be thinking, well, we want to make sure you're 100% right before that. So there could be a bit of a club v country thing in Ruben's mind and certainly Chelsea will be obviously wanting to look after their own asset first and foremost. Well, the under-23s next game is scheduled for Monday the 17th of February. That is against Arsenal. So we'll report back next week if he is involved in that. Next up, though, we're going to talk about some of the people who've helped develop Loftus-Cheek and many others. Uh, Jens, you've written a fabulous piece on Andy Myers and his role in the academy as under-23s and under-19s coach. It's up on The Athletic now, and I implore everyone listening to this to read it. Uh, Andrew Turner has, and it's prompted him to ask this question. After reading the Andy Myers piece and the list of players and coaches our academy's consistently produced, it's clear that Neil Bath is a genius. What could he do if he was in charge of the first team in a more formal director of football roles. We'll get to Myers soon, but but Neil Bath has become this kind of mythical figure in, in, in certainly from this season onwards, but obviously his work goes back years and years beyond that. Do you think he could do a different role or is this his field of expertise? I think this is his field of expertise. They're two totally different jobs. I mean, this is a a, a level where it's, it's sort of having fingers in a number of pies, as it were, knowing like youth football, local football, uh, bringing the coaches in. And I think Neil Barth is very much the happy in that scenario. I think when you're in a kind of director of football role, that's a much, much bigger job, much more complex in the sense it's, it's European-wide, whereas Neil Barth is you know, pretty much restricted to domestic uh, and local. Um, I think I remember Neil Barth sort of coming in and um, early on and and sort of having to stress uh, patience because of course there was so much pressure on the academy to bring someone through and everyone was like we're well, spending so much money and it, it effectively took nine a decade for all his work to pay off but there's no doubt about it you, sp- you speak to people around the club about the impact he has and it's absolutely seismic. He's a person we know not actually that much about him. Can you fill in listeners on on Neil Bath the man rather than Neil Bath the hashtag? He's he's, he's not hands off, but he, he's quite a sort of calm, measured guy. Is the impression that I get? Yeah, I mean, I wish I could tell you more about what he's like as a man, but he does keep a very very low profile. It's it, that is generally the way they operate at the academy. They don't like headlines. I mean, he's probably been mentioned more this season than he has in the previous fifteen because. Um, obviously Frank Lampard singled him out for praise in press conferences him and Jim Fraser who's been his long serving assistant um, but they don't like the limelight themselves and I think that's another part of why he wouldn't want a kind of director of football role because you only have to look at social media and the kind of criticism that Marina Granovskaya gets or Michael Emanalo got when he was at the club to know that when you're in a position of first team recruitment you are judged almost on a window-by-window basis. There is, as much as you try to plan long-term behind the scenes, you are judged by your results far more immediately. And I think I think what, he's, what you get the sense that he's relished is the ability to build a culture and build something, hire all his own people. You know, all the people in charge of all the various youth teams are his appointments. The whole structure is his design. And 
you've seen the fruits of that because from the early 2000s when they're recruiting out of South London and, and elsewhere, you're finally getting these guys into the first team. They've moulded them as people rather than just footballers. Um, and I think that there's also a power with that. You know, he's got more power in his current role than he would ever have in any sort of first team recruitment role because there is no one all-powerful person in charge of recruitment at Chelsea. Marina Granovskaya is the deal maker, but you've got head of recruitment. The coach has a say. Petr Cech now has a say. The owner has a say. So I think it's a, that's a far more political role and far more of maybe a collaborative role, whereas he gets to do what he wants to do and what he's wanted to do has paid off handsomely for Chelsea. Mm. So Neil Bath is the head of the academy. Andy Myers, as we mentioned, the under-23 coach. He was the under-19s coach briefly, but they went out of the uh, UEFA Youth League for the group stage this season. Before we talk about him, let's hear from the man himself. He spoke to Chelsea TV about his coaching pathway. Oh, Myers is in the clear. Andy Myers can wrap it up for Chelsea. You don't know what you're about until you leave somewhere and go and see what you can achieve. And for me, it's just personally a very good development program. It means a lot, to be honest. It's a bit of an honour, you know. And a lot of people have taken this role and done really well with it. But for me, it was come out of the blue a little bit. I know that Jodie was moving on, but when I got the call, it was something I couldn't really not take. I've learned so much from the coaches I've worked with, obviously with Dan, who's a great coach, AD. You've got Joe Edwards, who I worked with last year, as well as an under-14s coach. And also being able to work alongside some of the first-team managers at 23s level as well gives you a lot of experience for other things as well. So it's been a really funny journey for me, but really enjoyable. Very excited, you know, not much pressure from what Jody done. He ain't left me a lot to go with, I know. But, you know, for me, like I said, the biggest word is development and trying to make sure we carry on a winning mentality, but getting players up and ready for their next level and their next challenge and what they're looking to progress to do. Thanks to you, Chelsea TV, for that audio. Uh, so the piece that you guys put together, uh, Simon, basically, he didn't play m many games for Chelsea. He played over 100 games, but it's not like he had a long and storied career. Retired relatively early, and that's what let him turn his focus to coaching, and it's something that he quickly took to. Yeah, but even then, um, as we say in the piece, it wasn't like Chelsea, there was a job just waiting for him when, when he retired. It, it, it was sort of going down to his local youth club old Isleworthians with his son and and it sort of went from there really um it's it's just interesting that there's been so many high profile um Chelsea appointments lately with the academy and, and with the loan department but actually it's kind of the less fashionable names um or certainly some of them that are, that are making headway I mean Eddie Newton was a was another one that was kind of Yes, he was he was a bit of a fan favourite, but you wouldn't sort of say he's he's on a par with the likes of Makaleli, who's now in the loan department, or um, of course Jody Morris, who's now with the first team. And squad. Joe Edwards was only ever a trainee at Chelsea. Yeah, so what you hear about Myers is that because he was a youth player though and came through the academy himself, even though in a le less successful period at Chelsea, that the young players absolutely look up to him. And what interests me is that he's not as vocal as perhaps some of the others, but he has this calm assurance that everyone just bounces off. And the, the proof of the pudding is in the PL2 table this season, Liam, because Chelsea are top and they haven't lost a game in that competition. And, and it's actually quite a difficult 
thing for him to juggle that because he's got um, quite a young average age of player given what other teams like Everton do their team's full of 20 year olds Chelsea's is more 17, 18, 19 year olds and he knows that some of those players are going to be out this week playing in the Youth Cup and others are going to be training with the first team so it's a bit of a hodgepodge you never know till the last minute what your team is it's, it's actually we sometimes criticise PL2 as not being a great test for the players but for coaches it can be a good way to learn your craft Yeah definitely and you've also got to bear in mind that he's lost a couple of players in January who've gone out on loan so Mark Gurr he's gone to Swansea George McEachran's left as well so there's, there's Charlie that. Brown and Tarek Lamptey too Charlie Brown Tarek Lamptey so th- there's that kind of internal um, disruption almost to his job although obviously there's always the balance and maybe sometimes it's a tension for a coach at that level of you want to get results especially at an academy like Chelsea which prides itself on on being dominant in these competitions but you also are putting development first and foremost and sometimes that development has to happen elsewhere and everything that you've heard about Myers suggests that he always puts development first I remember I spoke to a couple of the people at Old Isleworthians for the piece and, and they were saying that even when he was coaching there before you get the sense that he'd even thought I'm going to be a professional coach his team were regarded as maybe the best footballing team in the league because they prioritised passing the ball out from the back. It wasn't necessarily always about results. They didn't necessarily come top of the league, but they played some of the best football. And and he, he had that early... He showcased those early coaching instincts with his own sons in those teams. And actually, his middle son has just been signed by Chelsea uh, in the under-14, Zane. So, yeah, he's, he's a natural coach, um, and he's got those kind of developmental instincts, but he's also shown the ability to get results on the pitch, which we've seen is, is part of the the lineage at Chelsea in recent years. What I also found interesting is that, like the young players, many of whom have had to be patient to wait for their opportunity, he's had to be patient too, because they're... Ha- went out, he went out on loan, didn't he? He went out on loan. <laughs> to be to, to be as was the style Classic the pathway. <laughs> Um, but yeah, he had to sort of bide his time, work as a, mainly as a number two to, to Dermot Drummy and, and uh, Joe Edwards um, and Aid Vivash. Um, and, it, and, it, and then Vitesse was actually the making of him in, in many regards. Um, you, you speak to sort of people around what happened there and Vitesse absolutely thought he was the bee's knees. Um, and of course he came back and it, it ended up a bit like with youth players, all about timing. You know, Jody left with, with, to go with Frank um, to Derby, and that opened up the the under 18s job. And then, of course, Joe Edwards gets promoted to the backroom staff under Frank at the start of this season, um, and so he gets the under 23s. And it, and and it's just suddenly like having had to sort of play a little bit second fiddle to to other people in the main job. Um, he's now getting a chance to shine. And but what what should also be pointed out is that even when he was in the lesser role his influence on key players was still going on. So like he had a very good relationship with some of the biggest names that have gone on to, to make a big, big impact. And as I said in the piece, Mason Mount, for example, sought his advice before his own loan moved to Vitesse. So it just shows what kind of um, esteem he's been held in by a lot of the players there. Yeah, and he's got John Harley as his assistant. So lovely uh, Chelsea 90s vibes about the under-23s this season. As I say, do check out that piece. It's up on The Athletic now. And next today, we're going to look ahead to the game against Manchester United at the bridge this coming Monday. This Athletic podcast is brought to you in association with Stitch Fix, an online personal styling service that takes the hard work out of dressing well.
To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash athletic, fill in a style quiz and tell us about your personal style, budget, size and shape and your clothing needs and wants. A personal stylist will then send you five items of clothing, each handpicked especially for you from our selection of 100 brands, including established names and up-and-coming designers. Try on everything at home and style with other items in your wardrobe. You can then pay for what you love and send back the rest. For your stylist time, you pay a charge of just £10, which is deducted from the cost of anything you decide to buy. Remember, you try before you buy. Delivery and returns are free both ways, and you don't need a subscription to sign up. Get started with Stitch Fix today and support our podcast by going to stitchfix.co.uk slash athletic right now. That's S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot co.uk forward slash athletic. So more than a fortnight since they last kicked the ball competitively, Chelsea will get back to Premier League business in what can only be described as a crunch game in their bid to finish in the top four. Manchester United, the visitors to West London, they're six points behind the Blues ahead of kickoff, so victory for either side could be pivotal come May. Uh, Liam, Chelsea already lost twice to United this term. The first game, first game of the season, you could say was a bit of a freak, but what will Lampard and co have learned from that game and the League Cup tie in October? I think they've learned that United are uniquely set up in terms of their personnel and Solskjaer's tactical preferences to cause them problems because United are clearly a counter-attacking team. They have a lot of speed in transition. They do like to defend deep under Solskjaer and that is the thing that Chelsea have had problems with against lesser sides um, over the last couple of months. So there has to be some real careful thinking this week I think about how they approach that game we've seen Lampard try a lot of different things in in big games he's he obviously switched to a back three against Spurs and surprised Mourinho and against Arsenal he switched it up mid-game bringing on Jorginho so there may be a requirement for some lateral thinking heading into this game and maybe within it if things aren't going Chelsea's way because if United are as ruthless as they've been in those first two games, it could be a tricky one for Chelsea. And and then, of course, it also depends on the fitness of certain key players like Tammy Abraham. Uh, United went on a winter training camp, Simon. Chelsea have let their players have some time off. Any idea what would be the better strategy? It's difficult to say uh, beforehand. Bees tweeted to ask, given the weather expected this week, was it a mistake not holding a week of training away somewhere warm? I don't think that's a massive problem, is it, for the rest of the week? I actually quite like the idea of saying, you know what, go and spend some time away from football and have a proper break, as is supposed to be the point of having a winter break. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a cynic, (laughs) who knew, uh, when it comes to the winter break, because I think there's an element of you can almost talk yourself into needing one. Um, And when you sort of think, effectively, Chelsea have had one week off and then they're back in training. Uh, But that's a debate for another day. And I'm going to completely contradict myself by now saying if ever a team needed a winter break, it's actually Chelsea. More mentally, I think, than physically. Because their form has been terrible. Funnily enough, you think back, their best run of form was interrupted by an international break in November. And they came back, lost at Man City, and they've never really been able to recover their mojo. It was almost like that that break came at the worst possible time. Because when you're winning week in, week out... You just want to keep on playing. You don't want to stop. Whereas now, um, of course, they've not been winning week in, week out. So you just want to get away, Frank included. Uh, I'm not sure if you went away, but just a break from each other, reset. And particularly perhaps the timing of this break is good for Chelsea because 
not just Man United, the games that follows. So they've been able to just switch off for a little bit and get away from each other and, and now they can reset. Also gives them an opportunity to get some key players fit. I mean, we mentioned Abraham who needed painkilling injections to play in the last game. Christian Pulisic's been out for a while. Lampard wouldn't really be drawn after the Leicester game on whether he'd make this one, but clearly that time off can only have helped him. Um, so Chelsea kind of need to get a little bit healthier. As for training this week, I don't think Storm Ciara is going to cause too many problems at Cobham because they have a full-size indoor pitch there that they can use if needed. Um, so I, th- I think training-wise, it's absolutely fine. Lampard made the judgment call that the players needed a few days to switch off before having a sort of four or five day fairly intense lead into this game. He described it as like a mini pre-season. So I'd imagine they're doing quite a lot of physical work, quite a lot of running, uh, getting up to speed for this one. We're just judging by, I mean, the club themselves posted uh, where the players been. Just judging by their happy faces uh, in all their Instagram pics. Mind you, if you can't be happy when you're swanning around, Dubai, whatever, then you'll never will be happy, will you? No, whatever, just Dubai. Footballers can only go to Dubai <laughs> on this winter break. That's the law. Yeah, it's a rule, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're recording next week's show later than usual, so we can reflect on that game, by the way. So do join us for that. Uh, next up today, elsewhere in Chelsea news. It won't take long. This is the bit where we usually round up what's been happening with the women's team, the under-23s and the under-18s. Yep, none of them were in action. Uh, the women's team supposed to be, but their WSL game against Manchester United fell foul of the aforementioned Storm Ciara. The under-18s and 23s didn't have a scheduled league fixture, but the 18s are in action tonight as we record. You, listener, will already know how they fared in their FA Youth Cup fifth-round tie at home to Wolves and the women's team host Birmingham on Wednesday night in a league fixture. Okay, time to delve into this week's mailbag. Remember, you can tweet me with a question at your convenience, and I'll put it to the group. My handle is at Matt Davis Adams. Great question here from Martin. What can we expect from these next three games? Will this period be season-defining? A hat-trick of all-in attempts, or will Frank prioritise one or two games of the three? Isley and Man United at home, Spurs at home, Bayern Munich at home. You can't really prioritise any of them, can you? They're all so important. It's a bit of a murderer's row of opponents, isn't it? Um I don't think he will prioritise. I think it will be Chelsea's, what Lampard deems to be Chelsea's strongest eleven for each game, and physical readiness will come into that. Form will come into that. Um, they just need to be more ruthless than we've seen in recent weeks, because if they're not, a run of games like this will really find you out. And I, I you know, when the draw was made, I thought in my head. Robert Lewandowski could really punish Chelsea over two legs um, with some of the mistakes they make defensively and also the the chances they miss at the other end. I could definitely see the tie going that way. Um, but the top priority for Chelsea as a club is top four. You know that That is clearly club level Lampard's primary objective and he knows that. Um, so I think the two Premier League games will be absolutely of the utmost importance because those head-to-heads are going to be so important in determining who finishes fourth but the buy and tie is such a glamour tie you have to go for it even if they are clearly underdogs they've been underdogs against Bayern before I made the mistake a few times when I was interviewing interviewing Jose Mourinho of asking him about a run of upcoming games and and, you know where priorities were and he, he looked at me like I'd had a blow to the head and said the next game is always the most important one and actually in these three that's probably right isn't it because 
win against Man United and then that feeds into Spurs and it, it's about building momentum at this stage of the season. In my opinion, the, the games that are the most important for Chelsea are Man United and Tottenham. I think anyone realistic looking at Chelsea's chance of the Champions League, we've all been there before 2012, but we're talking a totally different set of players. Um, and let's be honest, even the most diehard Chelsea fan is probably not dreaming of Champions League glory this season. What is vital, as, as Liam points out, what is vital for the club in so many ways, financially, the ability to bid for the big players that are going to take Chelsea on to the next level next season is top four football. And here they are, basically two six-pointers uh, against their sides that have been closing the gap very, very slowly, but they are starting to close the gap. And, and I think if Chelsea win these two games, it's massive. Whereas Bayern, it's obviously huge for kudos and you can never say never. I suppose you could also argue like Tottenham got to the final last season. No one saw that coming. But realistically, you can't see Chelsea going much further than the Champions League. But Premier League is absolutely massive for them. So six points out of six would do them very nicely indeed. Well, the way things are going, it'll be the, the Sheffield United game that they'll have marked on the calendar, Well, won't that it? as well, yeah. Add them to the list. Uh, question here from Mate. She wants to know, is there any update on the Andering contract situation and future? Liam, you've written about this for the Athletic. Yeah, so I wrote about this late last week as part of a broader piece um, about Chelsea's push to tie down the, some of their best academy prospects. So Andering and Ian Matson are the next names on the list um, to be done. And, and from what I'm hearing, talks over what would be a five and a half year contract for Andrew so to run to 2025, um, are going pretty well. Yeah, And always wary of putting a time frame on this because we'd been told fairly confidently that Tarek Lamptey's deal was done and then that situation flipped 180 within, well, very, very quickly. But as of now, the signs are pretty positive and... Chelsea are, are pretty optimistic of adding him to the increasing list of names that have committed their long-term futures in the last few months. It's going to be difficult for him to, to break through into the first team you'd think next season, so probably alone and, and maybe be looking to Conor Gallagher and thinking that's the kind of thing I want to replicate. Exactly, and it, and the challenge will be laid down for him to do that because basically if you don't impress on loan, then inevitably you're not going to get a chance. One can only reflect on, for example, Lewis Baker, who promised so much and, and is now sort of a forgotten man, sadly. Um, I think his loan in Germany has just been cancelled and he's now back at Cobham um, kicking his heels. So, yeah, Andrew, in the next step for him, go on loan in the summer, I'm sure he will do, season-long loan, perhaps the Championship, um, perhaps League One, and then take it from there. OK, coming up next, we're going to reveal our latest cult hero. Long, long clearance from him down to Hughes. Oh, what a finish! What a finish! Mark Hughes. One of the greatest goals he'll ever score for Chelsea. For this week's cult hero, we've chosen Mark Hughes. The Welshman came to Chelsea in the summer of 1995 for a paltry £1.5 million as part of Fergie's purge to allow the likes of Beckham, Butt, Scholes and the Nevilles to come through. Uh, Hughes only played 123 games for the Blues, scoring 39 times, but he did win the FA Cup, the League Cup and the Cup Winners' Cup. Highlight of his first season, a hat-trick against Leeds in a 4-1 win at the Bridge in April 96. Uh, but it was the next season, Simon, when his Blues career really kicked off. Big part of the team that won the FA Cup in 97, including a brace against Wimbledon in the semi at Highbury. 
Yeah, and what a steal. You got the impression that he thrives on proving people wrong. Um, he was very much sort of like forced out a little bit by United. He basically thought, right, your best days are over, off you go. Um, and of course, whilst United still went on to great things in the Premier League without him and continued to dominate, he really was a big part of Chelsea's growing into the force they are now, starting to win trophies. My, my uh, There's a few few memories that, that spring to mind which sum him up. There was, of course, his huge impact off the bench against Liverpool in the FA Cup, a huge game in Chelsea's history in the year they won the FA Cup. Chelsea were 2-0 down, looking completely lost. And I think he was very upset that he, he wasn't in the starting lineup. and he comes on and absolutely bullies Liverpool's defence and, and help get, gets one of the goals to get them back in it. And, of course, Chelsea went on to win 4-2. And the other sort of memory I have of him um, was his goal against Vicenza, which he kind of almost scored by himself. He sort of flicked it on, ran on to his own flick on and then volleyed it into the corner. That was the semi-final of the cup. Yeah, that's right, the second leg, um, which completed the comeback. Um, and it was a great night. But yeah, he's not really shown the personality that I thought he had on the pitch as a manager. Um, but no one can doubt he made a huge impact at Chelsea as a player. Yeah, known as Sparky. Spiky might have been a better nickname for him on the pitch and kind of chalk and cheese partnership with Gianfranco Zola, but actually a key player in kind of bringing out the best of Zola early on in his Chelsea career. Yeah, he did a lot of the ugly work, didn't he? A lot of the back-to-goal stuff, kind of um, a little bit like Olivier Giroud, really facilitating for, for Zola's more creative qualities. And I remember they dovetailed particularly well in the FA Cup, uh, was it semi-final win over Wimbledon in 97 on that run to the final. It's it's interesting to think about Hughes' Chelsea career because he arrives at the age of 31. And I remember um, talking to Colin Hutchinson a few months ago, who was Chelsea's chief executive at the time. And he said he took quite a lot of pleasure in uh, surprising the journalists who were covering Chelsea at the time because they all turned up basically to see Rude Hullett's unveiling. And he just announced on the spot that Chelsea had also signed Mark Hughes. Um, and he was almost the... Well, he was second billing, really, that summer to to a a former Ballon d'Or winner, but every bit as impactful to what Chelsea did over the next two years. And he also arrived with kind of a complicated reputation with Chelsea fans because he'd been integral to destroying them in the 94 FA Cup final. So I think he had a bit of making up to do, but he he certainly did it with what he achieved on the pitch. And and yeah, when you talk about how much easier he made Zola's early years, I think that's a huge impact on its own. His managerial career started really well. He did a good job with Wales, almost got them to a tournament. He won the League Cup with Blackburn, but in recent years, his stock's really fallen. Do you see him ever getting back in as a Premier League manager? I'd be very surprised. He's had quite a few opportunities now. and The thing about him is he doesn't seem to... Well, one, he doesn't seem to have recovered from what happened at Manchester City. He never really seemed to get over that. But two, he's one of those people... and. Look, not everyone is born to deal with us awful media, but Mark Hughes absolutely loathes it, and and you can tell. And it, but unfortunately, it is part of the game, and you do sort of wonder when he gives his three, when he gave his sort of three, four minute press conferences, if that's the kind of impression you give to us. What's the kind of impression he's giving to his players? His reign at QPR was, I think, another. I mean, QPR was a when it was an absolute basket case. But he campaigned, he lobbied for that job and took it from Neil Warnock, who got them promoted. 
and then spent an awful lot of money um, on some very, very average players. And again, I think his reputation took a real hit from that. So you can never say never because this game's absolutely mad and it's it comes back to bite you a lot of times. But I'd be very surprised if you see him in the Premier League again. I think it's a bit of a shame because he... I remember he did a really good job at Blackburn and, and that side were a, a pretty decent Premier League side to watch. I mean, they were very much a, a, a team of battlers as well, but they had a few footballers in that team um, and they were they were really establishing themselves in the top half of the Premier League and he was establishing himself. He got the City job pretty much on the strength of that, didn't he? So City was the turning point in his career in terms of getting another taste at a top club but I think the QPR spell as Simon says was what really damaged him in terms of getting any more opportunities at, at proper clubs in the Premier League well, I was just thinking actually that maybe his his route to the Premier League is he has to drop down a level and get someone promoted but I mean that's no easy task because the Championship is arguably the toughest division there is funnily enough to, to get out of We'll finish on a positive um Scorer of spectacular goals, if not a spectacular goal scorer, is one of those players, Liam, for, for younger listeners. It's worth putting Mark Hughes' goals into YouTube and you'll see some pretty impressive ones for Man United, for Barcelona, for Bayern Munich, for Chelsea. Play for some really big clubs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think the the big problem with his the way his managerial career has fizzled out is that you can forget just what heights he scaled as a player. He was a properly elite European footballer in his time for a long time. And yeah, there are a lot of thumping volleys and and powerful headers and quite a few finding top bins um, at his various clubs. So yeah, definitely one to seek out and a big part of Chelsea's history, even if he maybe wasn't there for quite as long as some. Mark Hughes, this week's Court Hero, we'll have another one. Uh, Next week, before we go, gents, what's in your agenda slash notepad for this week? I'm guessing, Simon, all eyes focused on Monday. Yeah, um, Liam and I are writing about... Uh, speaking of sort of cult heroes, um, I think they're probably better than that, actually, certainly in Wayne Matter's case. Um, but we're doing um, a, a piece on Matter and Matic and, and the difference in the love affair between them in terms of from the fan base. Um, so not, the love p- not the love affair between, between them. them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We'll just run Qu- that past legal. I hasten to add, yeah, not between them per se, um, but in terms of how one seems to be more adored um, by Chelsea fans than the other um, so we're focusing on that I'm focusing as well on another of the youth players uh, Broger the, the striker who's playing hopefully in the FA Youth Cup um, so yeah that's on the on the horizon but clearly all our attention is for Chelsea Man United Favourite one matter goal Liam Oh, you've put me on the spot there. <laughs> I really like um, the volley he scored against United from Fernando Torres's cross, if you remember. In, in was that was three. in the 3-3 f- three, 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 or 4-4, yeah. four, four, was it? 3-3, three, three. Three. Three, three, yeah. Um, when Torres was busy trying to rebrand himself as a winger because he didn't want to get into scoring positions. Uh, that, that was an amazing goal, but there are quite a few. I mean, you talk about with Mark Hughes, great goal, score of great goals rather than a great goal scorer. That was certainly one matter. Um I really, really liked um, some of the goals he scored against Arsenal as well. And there were so many goals against big teams, more than anything else. And obviously the answer for Matic is FA Cup semi-finals first. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, pick that one out, I think is the is the expression. Yeah, and it was, I remember that because, not just because you know, it's a very memorable goal, but he'd actually not had a very good game. Uh, Chelsea were three tough at the time. And I think I, think I remember sort of some element of dissent uh, from the crowd 
um, certainly the Chelsea end. Um, and this was a period where perhaps he wasn't flavour of the month among the fan base. And then he proceeds to score one of the greatest Wembley goals ever. And um, even the bench, uh, I remember the camera cutting to the bench and sort of players on the bench. Just Kurt going Zuma up. going, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. it's the famous gift. It's going absolutely it, yeah. ballistic. Uh, but he was, I think, I think in fairness, it reflected what we were all thinking because it was just one of those out of the blue moments, no pun intended, that it was just like, wow, he scored. I think it has to go down as one of the most demoralising goals in the history of the Chelsea-Spurs rivalry because they were the better team in that game for long stretches. And obviously when Hazard came off the bench, put Chelsea 3-2 up, changed it. But yeah, there was, there was nothing to hint that that goal was coming and it was just an absolutely ridiculous strike. Looking forward to reading that piece. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Do join us again next week for another episode of Straight Out of Cobham. And for ad-free podcasts, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic and listen through the app. You can get a 40% discount now by using the code CHELSEAPOD. Until then, from myself, Liam and Simon, it's bye for now.